Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. In 2005, Todd Braver and his family set off for England. Dr. Braver is a professor of psychology, neuroscience, and radiology here at Washington University in St. Louis. He had been invited to spend a year as a visiting fellow at Cambridge. Like many newcomers to England, Braver quickly realized that not everything is exactly the same as in the United States, especially once you get in a car. As you probably know, and listeners know that uh, in England, everything is on the reverse in terms of driving rules. So you drive on the uh, on the left side of the road, but the steering wheel is on the right, and the instrument panel is on the right, and the rules of the road are opposite. And so the very first time I, I bought this car and I set out to drive, uh, suddenly I realized all the driving rules and all the knowledge that I had suddenly was you know kind of an interference. So I really felt myself very consciously thinking to myself, okay. If I want to, you know, turn on my turn signal, it's not on the left side where I normally would, it's on the right. If, I, if I'm looking, you know, to make a right turn, I have to look in the opposite direction than I think. So I was really keeping all these rules in my mind, really attending to them very carefully. And when I would set out to drive, I'd almost like kind of go through a mental checklist. Okay, what am I going to be doing on this, the very first couple trips that we went on? To drive safely, Braver had to use cognitive control. It's what we all use when we set a goal, whether at work or at home, or in this case, on the road, and then carry out that goal. Braver does research on cognitive control, so he, more than just about anyone, can tell us exactly what was going on in his brain as he drove around the streets of Cambridge. According to Braver, there are two main types of cognitive control, proactive and reactive. When you really concentrate and are always reminding yourself of your goal, that's proactive control. This is what Braver was using when he first got to England. So that was really a kind of proactive mode that I was engaged in because I really knew that of course, I you know, cared about my family, didn't want to get in an accident, knew that it was going to be challenging, had this expectation, and kind of knew what my goal was. As he got more familiar with the lay of the land, Braver didn't have to constantly think about every rule of driving. If he momentarily forgot about some rule, a quick reminder from a sign would be enough to grab his attention. But even though he wasn't concentrating quite as intensely, he was still using cognitive control. He had just shifted to another mode, one called reactive control. There are a couple of main differences between reactive and proactive, which he was using earlier. The difference really between these two modes is really in terms of the kind of time course. So whereas the proactive mode is a kind of more sustained and anticipatory mode where you're keeping that information over some period of time in your mind so that you can help anticipate um, these events. The reactive mode we think of as more kind of a just-in-time, kind of a more transient mode of control that, that arises when the need arises and only really when it arises. Through brain imaging, Braver has looked into what's really going on in our heads when we use both of these modes of control. For example, both involve the prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain behind your temples. But even though the two modes use the same part of the brain, there are real differences between the two modes. 
What we found is under different situations, the prefrontal cortex seemed to have different kind of time patterns of activity, time course of activity. In situations in which we had hypothesized, you know, as we we're starting to think about this, it might be more proactive mode, we would see the activity starting earlier when we would get maybe some cues from the environment that the, that the demands might be higher and persisting for longer periods of time. With reactive control, the activity started later and didn't last as long. And there was another major difference. In addition to the prefrontal cortex, when people used reactive control, a bunch of other networks in the brain would also light up. Under these kind of more reactive control situations, we would see um, another brain region that tends to co-activate with this uh, prefrontal cortex called the anterior cingulate cortex. That seems to be kind of the brain's detector of, of danger or interference. That would come on and then we would see the prefrontal cortex, but a lot of other regions in this wider control network. So if you need to kind of react more quickly, you might need a more broader set of brain regions to engage so they can go engage quickly and also might need to be kind of driven by a kind of detector. Oh yeah, this is an event that causes me to maybe retrieve or reactivate those goals. It's amazing just to be able to take a peek into the human brain and see what's going on when people set goals and carry them out. But this kind of work raises so many more questions. Let's say two people come into Dr. Braver's lab and are asked to do some word games. A lot of what happens in the participants' brains has to do with the type of problem or task they're given. But even when doing the exact same problem, people's brains will react differently. Some people seem to prefer using proactive control. Others lean more toward reactive control. Some brains seem to react more or less quickly. Why? To answer that question, you have to start thinking about motivation. Why do people ever try to solve problems? This question fascinates Braver. One of the things that got me really interested in this question was a fairly mundane observation, but one that you know comes up for all of us that do experimental research, which is, you know, we ask people to do hard cognitive tasks in our laboratory all the time. And we're at, I'm in an institution where most of the, the people that come to our experiments are pretty high functioning. They're, they, they like to do tasks, but um, they're good at it. But some of them we find, you know, they think this is great and they really try their hardest and they don't feel bored at all by it. It seems like and they're, you know, they're disappointed if they make any errors. Other people come in and they're kind of very much, you know, they don't care very much. We would say they're unmotivated. And so it kind of begs a question to me that when we say, okay, you know, they're not motivated, they're not performing their best, but that really kind of says, well, what is this connection between our motivation and our cognitive systems? Why do we not always perform at our best? And one of the things that we've kind of come to, I think, uh, perspective on is this view that our engagement of our cognitive systems, we kind of think about it in a kind of almost like a cost-benefit trade-off, which is, we don't know why yet, and we're interested in this, but you know, some things are cognitively effortful. If, if I gave you a list of hard math problems to solve right now, and you might do it, but you, your brain would be tired and you might not like doing even if you could perform well on it, right? So 
for whatever reason, which we're not sure about, our brains find engaging cognitive control over extended periods somewhat costly. And so we might want to, you know, try not to exert it very much unless the situation warrants it, right? So what we think is that our brains are kind of making these implicit decisions all the time. You know, in this situation, here's how much it's going to cognitively cost me, and here's what I'm going to get if I do that, right? And is it worth it? And so we think that our brains are kind of making these motivational decisions, even when they're not being stated explicitly. But if we're interested in studying that, what we need to do is now put that under experimental control, explicitly kind of make it more valuable or less valuable to do, to do well in the task, and then study how manipulating the value, the motivational value of, your, of the cognitive task and your performance, how that changes what's going on in your brain. Some of these kinds of experiments are already underway. As it turns out, one way to motivate people is to give them money. So we'll, we'll do some situations where we'll say you're doing a difficult task, and if you do well, if you're fast and you're accurate in this task, each trial that you do well, you'll get a little monetary bonus. Um, when we do that, we find that the people that are most sensitive to the rewards in terms of self-reported personality traits, then they seem to shift um, their brain activity and their performance seems to, to, to be in this more proactive mode. But even money on the table doesn't have the same effect on everyone. Some people get more excited about being rewarded for their work or about the possibility of getting a little extra cash. For other people, this isn't as important. There are a lot of possible explanations for why people use proactive or reactive control in different situations. Some people's brains might just be better or more efficient at one mode or another, so they tend to stick to that mode. By looking into these kinds of differences and thinking about how things like motivation and personality affect how we use our brains and how we accomplish our goals, Braver is reflecting a new way of doing neuroscience. In earlier history of psychology and neuroscience, there was kind of a big separation between the people that kind of studied motivation and learning and emotion and the people that were studying cognition. And so the people that are studying cognition, attention and learning and, and uh, short-term memory and long-term memory, kind of thought about this as being very kind of cold and that was like kind of the rational part of our brain and it really wasn't impacted by these kind of motivational things or that at least that there was a different area of study, you didn't really have to, to worry about that. I think as we know more about the way brains are organized, we know that the brain doesn't really separate out the kind of motivational part. They're all interacting together. And so I think there's now kind of more of appreciation that the reason, again, that we engage in cognitively demanding activities, you know, it's because of motivational reasons that we value the outcomes. We're motivated to do that. There's a new appreciation that we need to kind of put these things together in our study of it. Next up, Dr. Braver is looking at how sets of twins use cognitive control. This project is just starting up, and it could reveal exciting new information about how genetics, upbringing, and personality affect how people carry out their goals. Sometime in the future, this information could help scientists figure out ways to help people be more productive or successful. So stay tuned. Many thanks to Todd Braver for joining Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, including more from our series on the human brain, be sure to visit our website, holdthatthought.wustl.edu, 
and subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can also always find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, PRX, iTunes, and Stitcher. Thanks so much for listening.